The word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Jesus said, For it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours." But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. So begins our gospel reading and the parable of the talents. And the first thing we need to do is make clear that a talent is a measurement of money by weight. So, before he leaves on his journey the man is handing different amounts of silver to his various servants. It's important to make that distinction because 
I've known a sermon or two to make the lazy jump that since the word talent often means in English a special ability that somebody has, then this parable is about using such endowments. Such a lazy sermon, and by lazy I mean awful, then goes like this. Different people have different talents which God has given, and some people have more talents than other people. So whatever talents you do have, you need to identify them and use them in service to God and to others. If you can play the piano, then play the piano. If you have a thing for baking, then start making cookies. If you're into woodworking, start building. If you can whistle tunes through your nose, then... Well, I, I have no idea what you're going to do with that. Although if you can do a duet, you might be on to something. Anyways, the lazy sermon is attached to a lazy preacher who might then pass out a questionnaire with a quasi-Christian title like Spiritual Gifts Inventory, which will help you discover who you are and what you can do, which really helps him discover who you are and how you can help around the congregation. Then he sends the piano players towards the parish music team, the bakers towards the fellowship committee, the woodworkers towards the trustees, and the nose whistlers to a very special committee that meets once a year in the basement. He now has his army of workers to assist with parish life. And he also has the means to motivate, even if he doesn't say it out loud. See, if this parable is about you using your talents and you don't use your talents, then you will be cast into outer darkness, says the text, and there there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, you better start baking. Now there's enough truth amongst the rubbish that it almost sounds right. It's true that God does give different talents to different people, and some have more than others. And it's true that you should make use of your talents in service to God and others, because that's true about everything God gives. It's true that congregations usually don't have a glut of volunteers, though to be truthful, many of the opportunities don't require a huge amount of specialized talent. And it's further true that some talents are extremely useful in church life, and some are more useful than others. It's also true that a lot of this just shakes out as life goes on. If you're gifted for cooking and bad with mechanical things, you're not going to work at a garage, at least not for very long, and you don't need a gifts inventory to figure that out. Furthermore, it's also true that sometimes you end up in a situation where you can't use your talents because you have other things to do. If, for instance, you golf with a three handicap, you've got talent, but it's not going to put food on the table for the family. So, by all means, make use of the talents that God gives you within your stations and the opportunities that he provides at church and elsewhere. But, if you're a baker who's not making cookies, you are not risking eternal darkness. That would be salvation by the good work of food preparation. And what better good work is there than making cookies? But you are not saved by works, you're saved by grace alone. Now that you've kindly endured my tirade about what this parable is not about, 
I suppose I could spend some time on what this parable is about. This parable is not about using talents. This parable is about the problem that the master is a hard man. That's the servant's excuse when the master returns. The master gave five talents to one servant, two to another, and one to this one. The servant with five doubled to ten, and the servant with two doubled to four. The servant with one buried the one in the ground because, he says, he knew the master was a hard man. He reaps where he doesn't sow, and he gathers where he didn't plant. He gives his money to his servants, and he expects a return. He is not above casting them out into the outer darkness, it appears, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, says the servant, the master is a hard man. That's the problem. You kind of get the idea that when the master is annoyed, someone's going to wake up with a horse head in his bed. Here's the problem. The problem is not that the master is a hard man. There's no proof of that in the parable. When he entrusts his silver to his servants, it's his silver and they're his servants. So he expects them to do what they've agreed to do while he is gone, which does not seem that unreasonable. What does seem unreasonable is how lavishly he rewards the first two for doing what they're supposed to do. He says to each one of them in turn, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's quite a bit of praise. It's a notch or two above a half day off and a gift card to Panera. The problem is not that the master is a hard man, because there is no proof that he is. The problem is that the third servant believes the master is a hard man. When the other two make use of what the master gives them and go about their money-doubling work, the third one buries it instead. He doesn't make use of what the master gives, not at all. It's buried in the dirt, dead and gone, except then the master returns. Then the servant has got to stand before the master and give an account. The silver has done nothing buried in the ground. As the master points out, at least a bank would have yielded interest. But the servant doesn't even have that to offer. What he does offer is this lame attempt at self-justification when he says, I didn't make use of what you gave me because I know you're a hard man. He seeks to pin the blame on the master because he didn't make use of the master's gifts. If he doesn't trust the master and he won't make use of the gifts, then there's no place for him in the house. And that leaves outside, and it's dark outside. In that place, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth because you're not inside anymore. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 25. His cross is only a couple of days away. He, the master of the house, has come to his people. God is in the flesh, dwelling among them, handing out his gifts left and right to all who will hear and receive them. 
The chief priests and Pharisees, however, do not want to receive his gifts. They don't want to bury what he gives, though. They want to bury him. And they will, by the end of the week, having plotted his death by crucifixion, they will see that he is laid in a tomb soon enough. He rises from the dead three days later, of course, and risen again, he's still giving his gifts of peace and grace and salvation. He does this because he suffered his father's wrath for sinners, even for his enemies. In fact, think, while he was on the cross, day became night as it was plunged into darkness, as he was plunged into outer darkness. It was Christ who, in his passion, suffered the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. It was Christ who, on the cross, was cast out and forsaken by his Father as the worthless one, guilty of all sin. He doesn't die this death because his Father is hard. He does this because both he and his Father are both just and merciful. In God's perfect justice, the wages of sin is death, and the soul that sins shall die. In God's mercy, the Son becomes flesh and stands in for the sinner, suffering the Father's justice so that man can be pardoned. In God's grace, he pours out this pardon abundantly in his word and his sacraments. He keeps giving you his gifts of forgiveness grace upon grace, life and salvation. And he bids you to receive them and hold on to them so that you might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's done. You're forgiven. Eternal life is yours unless you don't want the forgiveness that he gives. If you don't, that's your call. But saying no to the Lord's gifts is to say that you don't want to be in his household. It's very dark outside, and outside for eternity, the sun never rises. The criminal mind doesn't want to take responsibility. It's easy to imagine a case where a criminal caught red-handed stands before a judge to receive his sentence and declares that the problem is not his crime but that the judge is unfair, the system is corrupt, or society is to blame. In other words, it's not his fault, but something else, maybe everything else, is the hard man. It's also easy to imagine a judge who agrees and lets a criminal walk, in which case the criminal doesn't consider the judge a hard man or a merciful man. He considers a judge a mark and a rube, and then gets back to being a criminal. That element is within you because it's inherent to the sinful nature. When God in his justice declares his holy law and punishes evil, the problem, of course, is not that sin is bad. The problem is that God is hard. When God takes the place of sinners, then God is a rube to be used for cheap grace so that sinners can get back to sinning. When God doesn't excuse your sin, he's the hard man. But when he forgives the sins of other sinners, he's weak. 
That's what the old Adam does to God's word. That's what your old Adam does to God's word. Look, the only proof that God is hard comes from the testimony of eight billion sinners who are trying to escape his justice and, I suppose, the whispers of demons who can't escape his justice. Billions of testimonies sounds like impressive proof until you realize it's just the same lie repeated billions of times. It's only by the work of the Holy Spirit that you submit to the justice of God and say that he is right and you are wrong, that he is just and you deserve his wrath for your sin. But the Spirit does not convict you of this to leave you in the crosshairs. He does this to point you to the cross. Because it's only by the work of the Holy Spirit that you believe that God is gracious and merciful. So merciful that the Son stood in and took your death sentence upon himself at the cross so that you might be God's child, holy and beloved, and dwell in his house forever. And by that gift of faith bestowed by the Holy Spirit, you are gathered here to this place because Christ, who has gone on a journey from cross to grave to his Father's right hand, he continues to give you his gifts until he returns. He forgives your sins. He strengthens your faith. He preserves your life. He sustains you in trouble. He keeps you righteous with his righteousness as you await his return because he has borne your unrighteousness to the cross and he's paid the price for it there. Take these gifts of mercy and bury them and all you have left is this inescapable justice which you will always find unjust because you'll see God as the hard man but receive his gifts and hold on to them by faith. Be forgiven and repentant and filled with hope, and you will have the assurance that God is merciful to you and that when he returns in glory, he will say to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He will say this to you simply for being forgiven. What joy! And the joy of the Master is yours forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.